Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode four of Weekend at Dave's. My name is David Silbert, and we've got a great show planned for you today. First things first, I'd like to apologize for the long wait in getting episode four out to you guys. It's been a couple of months since the last episode, and we've had some audio technical difficulties getting you this newest episode. I'm working with an interim mic, uh, so hopefully there's not a ton of audio quality differences between this show in the previous shows, but regardless, we're working on getting that audio quality back up to the normal standard, and we're looking to do this a little more regularly from here on out, but anyway, I appreciate your patience, and yeah, we've got a great show for you planned. First things first, I want to give you guys an update on where I am with the backlog, and how that has caused me to think a little bit differently about the state of open world games today, and what that may mean for the future. That segues quite nicely into our second topic, which is Google Stadia and everything related to streaming in games, subscription-based games, and what that may look like years down the line. Finally, we'll wrap up by previewing PAX East, which is beginning just a little bit later this week, by the time this episode goes up. Very excited for that, and I'm looking forward to telling you guys what I'm excited to see from the show. So yeah, let's dive in. So an update on the backlog. I recently completed a playthrough of Horizon Zero Dawn, which to give those who haven't played it or aren't familiar with it a little bit of a background, this was uh, an open world RPG from Guerrilla Games, who had previously done the Killzone franchise, uh, you know, a series of first person shooters. And Horizon Zero Dawn was their, almost their breakout new franchise, it was their flagship RPG franchise for Sony. The game released in 2017, and I bought it pretty much at launch, but you might be wondering, how did it take me so long to finish the game? I finished the game early 2019, so it took me a better part of, I would say, a year and a half to two years to finish this one game. The, the reality is, playing through Horizon Zero Dawn, I actually decided quickly when I was playing through the game to do a 100% run of the game in order to get the Platinum Trophy. It was open world. It's funny, I've, I've talked about this previously in past episodes, but when I'm deciding whether or not to, to go for a Platinum Trophy, typically I have a couple of guidelines I go for. I don't like to replay games. I, I don't like... The, I feel like, for me, once I've played a game to complete, like, you know, from beginning to end, I consider that one and done. I don't like to go back. So open world games for me has been, have been a, a, a golden opportunity to do everything in a game in a single playthrough. So I did the same thing for Spider-Man when it came out last year. Completely 100% of that. Platinum had a good time. And for Horizon Zero Dawn, I did that. Of course, the issue with Horizon Zero Dawn was that that was on a much bigger scale. It's a much larger game than Spider-Man. And it's that trademark Ubisoft-esque type of open world game as opposed to a rockstar game where there are icons all over the map there's all kinds of things you can do from climbing machine watchtowers to uncover parts of the map and reveal fog of war in order to uncover more icons there are bandit camps to clear out there are corrupted machine areas to clear out as well there's just a lot of content like that there are side con there are side quests there are errands to complete Everything that's kind of ancillary to the main story, which, as a side note, is quite good. The main story is excellent, I should add. But 
really the reason I bring all this up. My playthrough of Horizon Zero Dawn took me about 80 hours to 100% that game and get the Platinum Trophy. For those, like my friends, I had several friends that played through the game as well, it took closer to 20 to 30 hours because they just stuck to the main missions and, and, and did main quest, maybe some side quests, I imagine, some upgrades, but really kind of stuck to the main, to the beaten path in order to complete it. And I don't see anything wrong with that. But my mentality when I'm playing an open world game is the developers have put out all this content to present to the player. It's in the form of this large open world, but really, in a sense, you need to look at it the same way you would a traditional action game like Devil May Cry or Bayonetta. The developers made this content. It's to be consumed. And part of this mumbo-jumbo about open world games is the idea that it's the back-of-the-box stuffer, right? Like, developers and publishers love to have that idea of our game is twice the size of Witcher 3. Our, our game is three times the size of Metal Gear Solid Five. Our game is 80 hours. Our game is 120 hours. Our game will last you a lifetime. But that means something for, for gamers. Some people have fewer opportunities to buy a large amount of games, and they, they subsist on a few key titles every year. And for them, that might be cool. If they're particular fans of single-player games, they might want to play a meaty single-player experience, open-world game that'll give them... 200 plus hours like a Skyrim or a Witcher Witcher 3 but for me when I'm playing through these games it just feels almost like it feels a bit too much like padding it feels like I'm going through the motions to complete something for the sake of a platinum trophy and the content while most of it is passable or serviceable it's not quite the same you can't compare to the main story the main meat of the game which is in the case of Horizon Zero Dawn it's its excellent main quest line. And that just brings me to my long-winded point. And that's that games today, I just feel, are too large. I feel like, as we see, it's a trend in development where we're seeing development costs, and I'm no developer, right? Obviously, obviously. As development costs go up, technology is improving, but is also simultaneously getting more expensive. We're, it's, a, it's a far cry. We're, we're a far ways away from the age of the NES and the Sega Genesis and the SNES and 8-bit and 16-bit graphics. We're now in a society where technical graphics and having as many enemies on screen as possible is equated to having a successful title and expansive landscapes with 4K and 60 frames per second, that's all considered necessities almost in order to have a compelling game. Of course, Indies is a bit of a, a different story here, right? It's, at least in my opinion, it's 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 kind of the new middle ground or, or, or it's, it's the new, it's the new way in which developers have ways to express their creativity and don't have to feel like they have to answer to consumers or shareholders or anything like that. But today, I just feel like AAA development, at least, games are getting too large. They simply are. If we look through the history of the open world game, it never used to be like this. Past generations, I remember pretty distinctly action games or linear games used to be kind of the crux of most ga most platforms lineups 
Look at the PS2. It thrived off of franchises like Jack, like Ratchet and Clank, like Sly. All these great... And they were made by prestigious studios, too. Look at Sucker... So Sucker Punch made the Sly Cooper games, and now they, they transitioned slowly to Infamous, and now Ghost of Tsushima. We have no idea how large that game is for Sony. Look at Naughty Dog. They kind of stayed within their own wheelhouse. They went from... Ironically, they went from a little more of an open game in the form of Jack and Daxter and the Jack games to the Uncharted games and The Last of Us. So they're a little bit of an outlier, but if you look at other studios from Sony, if you look at, again, Guerrilla Games going from Killzone to now Horizon Zero Dawn, you look at Insomniac Games going from Ratchet and Clank to Sunset Overdrive and now Spider-Man. It's a, it's a trend we're seeing with most developers. And I think this started off in 2013 with Grand Theft Auto V. Grand Theft Auto V, I think, is the root of all of this. It's one of the best performing games of all time, if not the best performing game of all time, on just a dollar basis, right? In terms of pure dollars made, maybe not in terms of, of copies sold, but in terms of dollars made, GTA V is the best performing game of all time. Highest grossing. That released in 2013 for last generation systems, but you can already tell that developers were willing to, I think based on the success of Grand Theft Auto V, developers were all, and, and publishers were all pushing into this idea of let's make our game open world, let's play with that idea. So just, I've created, you know, just a, a, a small list here. <clears throat> 2014 Dragon Age led off the newest generation of consoles with Dragon Age Inquisition, which was wildly larger than past Dragon Age games. 2015, we had Kojima bringing us Metal Gear Solid V, which was the first time in the series that we had ever gone open world. It was a big deal. And we had The Witcher 3, which was astronomically larger than The Witcher 1 or 2. Witcher 1 was a, was an open world game to an extent as well, and 2 was a little more linear, but still had some open parts. But 3 blows either of them out of the water in, time, in terms of size and scope. And... And to be fair, Witcher 3 is an excellent game, but absolutely Witcher 3 only seemed to enhance this idea, to drive home this idea of open world games equals success. 2016, we had Final Fantasy delve into the world of open world games as well, feeling very Western, very refreshed, but also, as I said, a little bloated. And then 2017, we had Breath of the Wild, again, another game that people will use as examples of the excellence of open world structure i would push back a little bit on that and say that i miss several aspects of the original zelda games i miss traditional dungeons i miss that sense of reward reward of going someplace specific and doing a, a more linear sequence of events I, I felt that missing but since then we've had an like a crazy amount of open world games if you just look at 2018 alone, we had Red Dead Redemption 2, Assassin's Creed Odyssey, Spider-Man, Far Cry 5, and Forza Horizon 4, just to name a few. This year in 2019, we've already gotten Far Cry New Dawn and Metro Exodus, and Crackdown 3, as bad as it was, but we got those three. We're getting Rage 2 down the line, we're getting Days Gone next month. There's just a lot of open world games that are just streaming through at, at an alarming rate. It feels like every year we're getting some sort of new open world experience. 
it's almost like an annualized thing. We're seeing Assassin's Creed every year, every other year. We're seeing Far Cry games almost every year as well. A lot of this is, again, Ubisoft-specific RPG, uh, open-world games, but we're seeing it almost across the board. We're seeing it from Japanese developers now. As I said before, I feel like this is unsustainable. I feel like with the rise of games as a service and the importance of multiplayer games like Fortnite and Apex, I feel like the monetization of these games is difficult. Rockstar has survived, Rockstar has thrived really based on Grand Theft Auto Online and perhaps we'll, time will tell whether or not Red Dead Online does as well, but the online component is a key factor. And I just feel, I feel like this might be a case where I'm not happy with the state of open world games because it feels like developers and publishers are presenting a product that is not indicative. It's not equally good throughout. Certain parts of the game, you know, for example, that brilliant Horizon Zero Dawn main quest is miles better than that random fetch quest you do. And this is an information that is not new, folks. It's not new. But it just, I, I've, I've been made to be more aware of it because I'm completing games for my backlog and I'm seeing a lot of these open world games that are, that are just a lot to handle, too much to bite off. And again, it's a finished product sort of deal where, yes, certain parts of the game, you could say you might have the choice of skipping. That's true. That is certainly true. But something is more striking where, look at Devil May Cry 5, which just came out short, lean game, infinitely replayable, or at least you can replay it a lot of times and get new experiences and new weapons and new new, new aspects of levels that you never had before. Or look at Sekiro that just came out, or Bloodborne from the past. You get better as you play the game, and then you go back and replay the game, and, and you have a whole new way to experience that game based on your own interior change. And it's, again, a lean experience that's anywhere from... For, for these linear games, for these more linear games, it could be anything from 5 hours to 30 hours or 5 hours to 20 hours of just lean content that is easily digestible and easily replayable. I think that that is the model that we've strayed away from. And again, there's nothing wrong with open world games. I'm not going to say CD Projekt Red, Rockstar don't make open world games because the games that they've put out have been incredible. And I, I am as excited for Cyberpunk 2077 as anybody. And I can't wait for... I guess Rockstar's next game, but we're starting to see some age with this concept of games being good being tied intrinsically to games being long, games having a lot of content, games having a lot of quests. I just think it simply is not true, and I think it's unsustainable as this industry continues to evolve. One example of an open world game that I think was done actually very well was Rockstar's own Bully. I use this example to close out this this discussion just because it shows where I think we could go in terms of open world games. Bully was an open world game made by Rockstar. It was small in scope, much smaller in scope than a game like Grand Theft Auto 4 or 5 or Red Dead Redemption 1 or 2. But yet it had that same focus, that same heart of an open world game. And what that is, what I'm getting at, at the end of the day, it's just a sense of freedom. It's a sense of being able to do what you want to do, being able to tackle different obstacles in a way that you see fit. So Bully, while you might not be able to head over to Liberty City and cause mayhem, you can go around your quiet town, 
You can skip school. You can go to the carnival. You can play pranks. You can beat up bullies and jocks. You can stealth around. There's so much that you can do in Bully. And it's, it's incredible to me that when I look back and see how long that game is, that game is well within 30 hours. Even, even if you're doing like a completion run. And it goes to show that Rockstar had an inc- made an incredible experience back then. And I think they were, ahead of, they were really ahead of their time in presenting what would have been more of a linear game in, an, in a more open context. Providing more options to the player, which is really never a bad thing. It really isn't. Again, it's just when we're getting to this point of large, massive worlds mean success. And I think that that's something we need to keep a tab on. Look at the pulse and monitor moving forward. This actually segues quite nicely into the second topic of the day, which is Google Stadia. Recently announced at the Game Developers Conference last week, Google Stadia is Google's newest foray into the world of video games, and they are doing so in the form of a console-less streaming device. You either hook it up to your TV in the form of a Chromecast-esque device, or perhaps even with Chromecast, or you play within a Google Chrome tab on your computer, and with the help of a Google Stadia controller, you are playing games that Google is streaming from servers across the world in supposedly 4K resolution, 60 frames per second. Seamlessly. Like, no lo- no additional load times. You click, it starts streaming, you're going. This is interesting because we've seen publishers try this streaming angle before. PlayStation has had its hand in the game a little bit with PlayStation Now. Way before then, we had Gamefly doing the Netflix-esque DVD returns, and that's still kind of going strong. We saw online get shuttered, which was the first real foray into streaming. Again, then Sony adopted it. We've seen Microsoft, which is a little bit behind in the console race, offer Game Pass, which is not streaming but subscription-based, and allows you to download games to the Xbox. That has been a resounding success for Microsoft, no doubt about it. And we've seen EA trying to get into the field, Ubisoft trying to get into the field. We've heard constantly, constantly that streaming is the future of games or subscription-based services are the future of games. And I believe that. I really do. I think down the line, as games become more and more digital, we're moving away from the physical realm. And I believe that games will, game services will have to adapt. I think they will adapt and make the most of this. And I, I see people are expressing apprehensiveness. They don't think Google might be able to pull this off. I think if there's one company... If there's any company that can support this large infrastructure of streaming, servers that just serve to stream games to people's homes, it's Google, it's Apple, it's Amazon. So I'm excited for this. I think that Google Stadia could be something crazy, something unique. And I think it's it's more important than just whether or not Stadia is successful. Because again, I think if Google doesn't have real first-party content behind this. I don't think anybody's going to bite. I think... I get the feeling that this is actually not subscription-based. I think this is pay-as-you-go. I think it's 60 bucks for a game. I think, currently, I don't know if that idea will work because I just feel like consumers... It's one. It's it's already bad enough. I think for uh, on the in the eyes of consumers that we're moving away from physical games that you can have on a shelf to digital stuff that seemingly could get wiped whenever. 
And then it's a whole thing entirely to be like streaming stuff that's on somebody's server. It's not even downloaded. You don't even have a box to download it to. So in the eyes of consumers, we're even getting farther removed from the idea of having a console and owning the stuff on your console. Now everything is being streamed from from Google. So I can see that being a pain point for, for Google and other companies that try to do this, where consumers just don't want to invest in something where it feels like they don't actually have ownership of the content. So I see Stadia, whether or not it's successful, I think it does remain to be seen. I think it helps forge the path, though, to a future in which we're closer, actually, to Game Pass for Microsoft. I think I think Game Pass is closer, more closely aligned to the future of games, where everything is subscription-based and allows you either to stream content or download it to a box. I think that that is almost the end game. I think the limit as X approaches infinity is this subscription-based service where it's basically becomes the new Netflix, the new Netflix of games, because all other forms of media, you see how music was not sustainable buying it a la carte on iTunes. And now Spotify and Apple Music and Google Music are all the drivers of this industry now. You see the same thing with movies. Of course, people still go to the movies to see stuff, but straight to DVD, dead on arrival. Any kind of DVD or Blu-ray, dead on arrival. And then, of course, television. I haven't watched TV in forever. I exclusively watch Netflix, Crunchyroll, pretty much any kind of streaming service where I can get the content faster than it's doled out on television and in more meaty chunks. So I just think it's natural that games approach this same spot, personally. And I'm excited to see where the future goes. I know that it's a little bit hazy in terms of how the content then gets produced. If, if, if everything is subscription-based, then how does third-party work? How do third-party developers and publishers make their money? I envision a future where a few, the big three, if you will, or maybe it's Google, Microsoft, Sony or whoever else is in the competition two, three generations down the line, or whenever this happens, I imagine they run their services, they run the streets, and third-party developers have to make a choice. They partner with certain service providers in a more second-party relationship. And I believe they get a cut, either a flat sum or a percentage of the proceeds. And I think that that's how the model is. And I think... I think... What that does, I think we'll see a lot more games as a service. I think Fortnite and Apex are both ahead of their time. I think in the near distant future, I think we see games that move far, far away from this $60 price point. Game prices are sorely understated. Games have games prices should have gone up generations ago. It's been stagnant at $60. It's unsustainable. We're seeing microtransactions. We're seeing games as a service. This is the new monetization model. So I feel like it, for games to succeed, I feel like that $60 price tag is less important than what's actually built into the game. So I, could, I, I see this moving quite nicely to streaming services where games are all included in the streaming price. And on top of that, maybe there are microtransactions within certain games as well. I feel like this, the payment model does not need to change drastically. I think it's merely a change from paying a la carte for items to paying a subscription model and then whatever monetization happens past then, past that point, is in line with what we are already used to. Of course, 
Again, I'm not a developer. I'm not a analyst. I'm not a finance guy. So I might be off base here. But it's interesting to think about nonetheless. And again, this is not something that's going to happen this upcoming generation or the generation after that or maybe even the generation after that. But it is the not-so-distant future this will be happening. I believe we're moving towards it already. And it's exciting. It's exciting. I'd love to see a future in which I never have to worry about buying and completing a game again. Just having access to everything at my fingertips and playing what I want. It reminds me a little bit of why I love anime so much is because I don't need to worry about a backlog. If I don't like the show, I can drop it. I didn't already invest money into it. And I think that that honestly benefits consumers. We might hate microtransactions. We might hate these games as a service sometimes. But I think in the long run, it actually helps stimulate the industry and help its developers and help its publishers to thrive. Anyway, food for thought. To end the podcast for today, which is already being quite lengthy, I apologize for the length, PAX East is coming up later this week, and I cannot be more excited for it. It has been two years since I've gone to PAX East. I was in France the year before, and I was covering Paris Games Week then. But we are back, and I'm excited to see what is in store. For PAX this year, I don't expect crazy, crazy announcements or anything big from the big publishers. Everybody's there. Microsoft, Sony, Nintendo. I think Ubisoft has a small booth even. You see Square Enix is there, Namco Bandai's there, Gearbox and 2K, I think, are there. Of course, that we have that Borderlands 3 announcement and maybe something from Shovel Knight, uh, Yacht Club Games. But aside from those announcements really i do not expect too much i don't expect much from microsoft maybe master chief collection for pc on display from sony i expect days gone not much else nintendo i've already seen the list it doesn't seem like a lot maybe there's bloodstained nothing in the lines nothing in terms of luigi's mansion or fire emblem three houses or animal crossing or pokemon there's nothing in that sort we're not getting any Nuggets of information from Nintendo at this show, at this show, which is to be honestly expected. But honestly, my favorite part of these shows is always going to play these indies and getting to explore titles that either are in early development, mid development, nearing completion, have been completed. It's always fun to be able to go talk with the developers, talk with the publishers, explore these games that not everybody has heard of, honestly. Get to play it for yourself. Get to appreciate the process of making a game and marketing that game to consumers. I think it's a really thrilling aspect of these trade shows. And it's something that I think a lot of people get lost on sometimes. It's lost on people that, you know, the this, this conference is not just for you to go and play some big AAA game so you can brag to your friends that you played it before it came out. Nor is it all about the after parties and getting to enjoy music and time with friends, as important as that is. It really is to honor the development of games, the making of games, the process in which games come to completion and are brought to the consumer. And I think it's a wonderful thing, and I always love going, I always compare it to the Christmas of video games. Perhaps 
less so than E3 in terms of announcements, sheer announcements, but in terms of actual interacting with the industry and getting real hands-on time with certain games, I think PAX does it better than any other show in the market. So that's excellent. Can't wait to go. The plan is to come back every day. I'm going all four days to PAX. Plan is to come back every day, record some impressions of games I played, maybe do a little quick write-up alongside that, and maybe do a little more long-form stuff after PAX has ended. So stay tuned for that. It should be fun. I'm excited. Thanks for being back. It's good to be back. Can't believe I'm doing this once again. But hopefully you enjoyed this episode. If you did, drop a comment. Let me know what kind of changes you'd like me to make for future episodes. In any case, this has been Weekend at Dave's. I am your host, David Silbert, and we'll see you next time.